Hello, and welcome to Switchblade Sisters, the podcast where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. Every week here on the podcast, we invite a new female filmmaker, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their favorite genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. I'm film critic Katie Walsh, and I'm so excited to have filmmaker Gabriella Ledesma here in the studio. Welcome to Switchblade. Thank you for having me. So Gabriela Ledesma was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where she started working as an actress at the age of five. At 16, she immigrated to the United States. After serving in the Navy, she earned bachelor's and master's degrees in filmmaking and in 2015 started a production company, Poison Pictures, with her wife, Callie Shutera. The two women co-wrote Blue, Gabriela's first feature film in which Callie stars as a woman recovering from a suicide attempt. The film racked up 30 awards on the festival circuit, including multiple for Best Director and Best Picture, and Blue was recently distributed by Gravitas Ventures, hitting VOD on October 22nd. Gabrielle has also directed commercial campaigns, corporate videos, comedy specials, and live shows. Her second feature film, The Last Conception, is currently in post and is expected to premiere in 2020. Today, Gabriella has chosen to discuss the classic 1960 Alfred Hitchcock film Psycho, starring Janet Leigh and Anthony Perkins. So, Gabby, why did you choose Psycho? I grew up with Psycho. Um, Hitchcock is one of my favorite directors. And uh, there's something about Psycho that doesn't matter how many times you watch. You always find something new. You always find, you know, Hitchcock all over that place, you know, and and things that filmmakers back in in the day uh, didn't do and was afraid to do it and was afraid to go against um, big studios or, or, you know, the audience wasn't ready for it. He broke the mode. You know, he he broke the door and, and said, you know, I'm, I'm setting a foundation for filmmaking for the future. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, it's interesting. As I was researching this film, I mean, I've seen it so many times, but I was doing some research into it. And I kind of didn't realize, like, what a revolutionary film this was just yeah. in terms of his career. He was in the process of leaving Paramount and moving over to Universal. And Paramount sort of found the, the subject matter of Psycho to be pretty distasteful so they yeah, were like too much you can you can take this the, here's the low budget and he was like you know what all these black and white exploitation films are making money i want to see if me the master of suspense can make a low budget schlocky mm-hmm. exploitation film so i think it's really interesting that he um kind of broke with the big budget like technicolor Absolutely. studio pictures so i'm gonna do a little uh plot rundown mm-hmm. of psycho i mean if you haven't seen psycho i don't i don't i don't know what to tell you literally turn this podcast off right now and go watch it um but as we always do here on switchblade sisters for those of you who haven't seen psycho today's episode will contain spoilers but that should not stop you from listening before you watch like we always say it's not what happens but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching still if you want to pause this episode and watch it now's your chance and actually i'm going to insist on on pausing this episode to watch Psycho. So a little background on Psycho, um, which I think is arguably Alfred Hitchcock's most famous, most famous film. It's based on a novel by Richard Bloch, inspired by the notorious Wisconsin serial killer Ed Gein, with a screenplay that was adapted by James Stefano. The film was released in 1960 to much fervor and mystery, much of it concocted by the master of suspense himself, who controlled all the trailers and when the movie theater would let people in and all of this stuff. And the film stars Janet Leigh as Marion Crane, a Phoenix secretary who impulsively decides to steal $40,000 that she's supposed to deposit for her boss and skip town, heading to California to see her lover, Sam, played by John Gavin. 
One rainy night, she stops at the Bates Motel when she's on the road, and she encounters the friendly but odd Norman Bates, the indelible Anthony Perkins. You, you eat like a bird. You'd know, of course. No, not really. Anyway, I hear the expression, eats like a bird, is really a false, fa- false, falsity. Because birds really eat a tremendous lot. But I don't really know anything about birds. My hobby is stuffing things. You know, taxidermy. Uh, they chat, share a dinner of sandwiches, and during this discussion, <laughs> Marion decides she's going to go home to Phoenix and return the money. She hops into the shower, and in one of cinema's most memorable scenes, is brutally murdered by an intruder with a knife. Ostensibly Norman's elderly mother. Norman disposes of Marion's body and her car in a nearby swamp, but it's not long before Marion's sister, Lila, Vera Miles, shows up in nearby Fairvale looking for Marion at Sam's place of work. She left home on Friday. I was in Tucson over the weekend, and I haven't heard from her since. Not even a phone call. There's also private investigator Arbogast, Martin Balsam, who tracks Marion to Bates Motel and ultimately becomes another victim of Norman's mother when he tries to question her. <laughs> Lila and Sam are left to pick up the pieces of Marion's disappearance, and while talking to some neighbors, they learn that Norman's mother has been dead and buried for years. Norman Bates's mother has been dead and buried in Green Lawn Cemetery for the past 10 years. I helped Norman pick out the dress she was buried in. Periwinkle blue. So who is that old woman sitting in the window? While Sam distracts Norman, Lila investigates the house, discovering Norman's mother's mummified corpse in the fruit cellar. Norman rushes in, dressed in a granny wagon dress, wielding a knife, but before he can attack, Sam restrains him. Mother was Norman all along. And that psychology is explained in a very long monologue at the end of the film delivered by Dr. Richmond, the great character actor, Simon Oakland. <laughs> At times, he could be both personalities, carry on conversations. At other times, the mother half took over completely. Now, he was never all Norman, but he was often only mother. And that monologue apparently was the studio that wanted. Oh. Uh, yeah, and, and there's other um, movies of Hitchcock that they, they uh, kind of ask, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit ask. And like, hey, you have to put it there. And he did it, but, it, you know, and, and to him it was just like, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to explain. Sure, go ahead and have it. So they, they felt like the studio felt like he had to explain this instead of just leaving the this mental whole, illness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. It's interesting because um, the screenwriter, James Stefano, was, or Joseph Stefano, mm-hmm. um, was saying that at the time that he was um, adapting this book, he was in analysis, as they used to call it. So he was yeah. in therapy, <laughs> yes. um, dealing with his own relationship with his mother. And Hitchcock apparently was, like, very interested. <laughs> you know, it's interesting just talking about how the writer was bringing some of his own stuff to mm-hmm. the adaptation, which, you know, it's an adaptation of a book, and it's based on on Ed Gein and all of this stuff. Um, but kind of bringing themselves to it. I mean, you made a film, your film Blue, mm-hmm. is about a woman who commit, who attempts suicide and sort of like picks up the pieces of her life around that. I mean, and you've said it's a personal story, and mm-hmm. 
you know, how did you approach the writing of that or the crafting of the story, you know, bringing your own experiences to this film? The first thing I wanted was to make sure that I still have a creative control, that mm-hmm. I didn't let what happened to me. And, you know, um, and, and the whole idea of tackling that issue personally was a big deal for me, too. I mean, it was like, you know, double down therapy at that point. You know, it was, was, was it hurt a lot. But to me was how can I be as creative as I possibly can? So what I did was... Um, the main character, Helen, I, 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 I grab that character and I flip it upside down. So I give her things that I would, would have done it and things that, you know, I would have said it, but I kind of shape her into be a slightly different than me in a way that I can see the character from outside perspective. Um, I gave the events as truth as truthfulness as I possibly could, and I try to be as honest as I could about it. So, you know, the rat poison is real. The coma is real. What people said while I was in a coma was real. So I grab those things and I try to be a little bit on the outside Outside, but give the story and, and the events itself to be as truthful as possible. And um, but with that said, other characters, I tried to grab two, three, four people that went through that with me and make it into one character. Mm. Uh, some of them, I just you know, of course, you know, uh, can tell much about the movie. But one of the characters, you know, it was was completely a new uh, character that never existed. But it was like my subconscious in a way, mm-hmm. which would be. Uh, um, the the uh, the Perkins. Funny, I just realized that his last name in the movie is Perkins. Subconscious. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> that is creepy. Um, so yeah, it, and I tried to do that. And one thing that I did it was was talk to Kelly, which is uh, you know the lead actress. We talked a lot. Mm-hmm. She would sit down with me. And was like, you know, how do you feel um, when you self harm, and how did you feel when you try to commit suicide? What was your last thoughts before that happened? So we talked so much. And we went through so much on that on that script to make sure that I could give it to her everything she needed in order to make that, you know, not my movie, but a movie that other people can can watch and go, I can I can relate to that or I've seen that happening to mm-hmm. somebody. So. Yeah. And did she write uh, the script with you, uh, Callie? Honestly, I, I don't even write my own email. I, I, I'm really bad at it. Um, so um, I give the story. And uh, she goes, and, and she's a fantastic writer when it comes to uh, dialogue. You know? I see. She's fantastic. And I say, this is exactly what's going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Let's talk about the dialogue. Let's let's shape yeah. up. And then we come together, and, and we just spend line by line saying, that person wouldn't say this. This person mm-hmm. wouldn't walk this way. So it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit me, a little bit her come together, yeah. and then we make that happen. I can imagine that it may have taken a long time for you to be ready to sort of like share this story of yours and I'm being ready oh yeah I mean uh, that happens when I was 16 and and, and and I really wanted that moment to go whatever I can do from this point on in my life to help other people not go through what I did I will and I wanted my first feature to be that to be me telling somebody hey it, it gets better and even if it doesn't how can we make it better for you and mm-hmm. adapt that for yourself so I've been ready since I was 16 when that happened and I said Okay, fine. If you wanted me to stay here, what can I do to make sure that I can help somebody else? Um, so, yeah, I guess I'd be ready. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the about budget and stuff because... <laughs> what budget? Psych- <laughs> well, you know, Psycho is... Um, $800,000. You got the numbers I down. Love down. I love it. Yeah, $806,000, which I think right now would be about $7 million. 
or so. But then again, eight hundred thousand dollars. It's it, back then was was nothing. Yeah. I mean, the apartment was like three million. Uh, you know, in, which by the way, I say the apartment because the apartment won uh, mm-hmm. best feature uh, the Oscars in nineteen sixty one, and Cycle wasn't even yeah there for best picture. You know, so uh, so yeah, it was a very small budget. It's also kind of um, interesting because this is still the studio system, still the Hollywood studio system. Um, Hitchcock was transitioning from his relationship at Paramount to Universal. Mm -hmm. It was his last film that he was making at Paramount. Paramount was sort of grossed out by the subject matter, so they gave him a small budget. Um, But it was not common for auteurs in the studio system. And and it's even weird to kind of say auteur, but I think (laughs) we can say Hitchcock's an auteur. But... um, you know, it was uncommon for them to to kind of do something gritty, mm-hmm. low budget. And he was looking at these exploitation films and saying, you know, I want to make that. Uh, I want to see if I yeah. can, if me as this like great filmmaker can make that. You but know? he took control. Right, completely. Absolutely. And he took control and, and, you know, I think using a smaller budget kind of allowed him more of that control. It's just interesting because it's... Pr- pre this sort of indie film revolution mm-hmm. that kind of started in the 1970s and and progressed. Which, which is a little iffy, you know, yeah. because nowadays you say indie, you're talking about, oh, this is an indie movie that was made for $4 million. Like, that's not, come on, guys, that's not indie. Let's not go crazy here. To me, $800,000 in 1960, it was indie. Yeah. You know, it could go. But I think that the one thing that he did was, one, he didn't take his salary or he didn't take right. as much of the salary as he possibly could. But two, he did something that George Lucas did, did. like George Lucas did for the, you know, marketing and not marketing, um, uh, the, the the figurines and, and went mm-hmm. on, uh, but Hitchcock did for the back end deal, which is not something that you know directors used to do back then. It's like fine, I'll take a hundred thousand dollars, not much of my pay, but I'm gonna get you know a percentage of the back end deal for this movie. And he took over the marketing. I mean, right. there is no trailer for Psycho. There's only six minutes of Hitchcock going around in the studios and going, here is where you know right. people get killed, and here is the <laughs> awesome looking house, and why not? And I think that because he took over, I think. He not only believed in the movie, but he believed that we were ready for that and people were ready. I mean, you said earlier that people could only come in on time. Like mm-hmm. the marketing strategy was you have to be here on time or you're not going to be, you know, coming in. And please don't talk about the movie right. after you leave the theater. So it, to me, it was that was such a, a new way to, to, to deal with marketing. Yeah, it was. I mean, he... Uh, it, it reminds me of when Avengers Endgame came out <laughs> and they were like don't spoil the don't Endgame spoil. and that it's sort of like he was the original don't exactly. spoil the Endgame because yep. he kept saying don't talk about Psycho mm-hmm. he wouldn't let the screenwriter talk about it he made all the cast member take a cast members take a vow mm-hmm. that they wouldn't talk about it and then apparently he had these recordings of his voice All in over, the theater yeah. saying like five minutes to psycho like 10 minutes to psycho yeah. Yeah. so he created this really immersive experience that he was sort of like guiding people along um which is an interesting you know way to sort of really take control of marketing and like make it an event so it's like oh we have to go see this i mean can you can you really say that I mean, what we thought was the protagonist of the movie dies like in the first act. Imagine somebody comes in like ten minutes and it's like, oh, she just died. Who is she? Get out of <laughs> yeah. here! And I mean, like, come on, let's 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 do this. And I think that was genius of him to say no. 
you got to watch the whole film and don't talk about it. Exactly. It, it's like Scream got copied the, that idea with exactly. the Drew Barrymore character who gets killed off exactly. very soon. And you think, oh, it's Drew Barrymore. Of course she's the, oh, oh, oh you know, she's she, gone. <laughs> she's in the trailer. She's on the poster. You're like, yeah. this movie stars Drew Barrymore. She's in it for 10 And minutes. she's gone. <laughs> and it, I love it. Yeah. I love it. It's fantastic. Well, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue Talking Psycho with Gabby Ledesma. We are so thrilled at your interest in attending Hieronymus Wiggenstaff's School for Heroism and Villainy. Wiggenstaff's beautiful campus boasts state-of-the-art facilities and instructors with real-world experience. We are also proud to say that our alumni have gone on to be professional heroes and villains in the most renowned kingdoms in the world. But of course, you are not applying to the main school, are you? You're applying for our sidekick and henchperson annex. You will still benefit from the school's amazing campus, and you'll have a lifetime of steady employment. Of course, there's no guarantee how long that lifetime will be. Join the McElroys as they return to Dungeons & Dragons with The Adventure Zone Graduation, every other Thursday on Maximum Fun, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. We are talking Psycho with Gabby Ledesma, the director of Blue, which is out on VOD right now. So when you're watching Psycho over the years, and you know, having seen it at age 12 and having watched it again recently and like having watched it, I'm sure, multiple times throughout your life. What are some of the things that you like notice in new and different ways when you are rewatching it? I think the details. Mm -hmm. The details always gets to me. Um, my absolute favorite scene is is uh, the push-in at the end. I would have been swat a fly. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know and they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. The older I get, the more I go, okay, so when Hitchcock talked about going to a wide, he's talking about the disconnection with the character, mm -hmm. you know, and because of the dissociation with the mental illness, that is, you know, um, Bates, uh, you know, issue. And then you go for a wide to a close-up, but when he gets the close-up, now you get right in the front of that guy that now turning to the killer that you thought he was all along just by the change of the face, you know? So it's those little details that I start to see now, how he goes from a white to a close-up, how, you know, the lead actress that we thought was going to be, really doesn't have a close-up the whole yeah. time. It's always a medium, but you stay on that medium and, and you wait for it. Um, I think a couple of days ago when I was watching, uh, uh, I saw, I was like, boy, she's starting the movie already in her bra, in bed. Oh, wow. That was a big deal back then. That I I, I never noticed thought of that. That too. I was like, this opening scene is very sexy. Yeah, and it's very steamy between. They don't care. Yeah, they're and, just talking to each other. I'm like, yeah, we're talking. I have a bra. Cool. I'm gonna put a shirt on, and you know, by the by the end, you go. Wow, that just happened. Mm -hmm. I imagine, you know, I can only only wonder what people were thinking about back then and going, wow, this is too much. But, you know, Hitchcock told me not to leave the theater. You know, <laughs> right, you have right, to watch it. Right. So, yeah, so the, the details, I think, and, and now more than ever, it's about the details as a, as a director, the yeah. things that, you know, you cannot write in the page and you have yeah. to take control and say, no, that is what I have to do. And 
uh, to make this work. And I think it's 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 fantastic. And also music. Um, I'm, I'm because now I'm I'm wanting to you know the second feature and why not? I'm, I have to be a little bit more focused on the music itself and how it comes along. I mean, I believe that 50 percent of the movie is the visual and the other 50 is sound and mm-hmm. music and why not? So now I'm listening to him going, oh, my God, you can turn off the sound and it's fantastic. You can turn up the sound and it's even better. It's oh, yeah. crazy to me how he play around with music, sound and the visual. So it's a lot of details, I guess. That Bernard Herrmann score is really oh just immediately you're in that world just as soon as it starts. Um, so you made a low budget first feature and we were talking about budget before and like working on a low budget. I mean, what? how, how did you sort of approach working within a limited with limited resources and and trying to tell such a like heartfelt and ambitious story you know with limited shooting days and trying to make it work hundred a hundred pages a hundred scenes 12 days of work in a 12 days in a very very low budget um honestly i think I, i have to say i had a fantastic cast and crew, mm-hmm. people that were there um, because they felt so compelled by this story about about the idea of, I mean, look, I was just checking this out. It was like between the ages of 10 and 34, uh, suicide is the second leading cause of suicide, uh, of death in, in the United States. Wow. I'm about age of 10 years old, you know, like there is a little scene, a documentary scene in the movie in the middle when people talk about, you know, what they've been through and uh, the times they, they try to commit suicide and whatnot. And I realized that we only did that in one take. Wow. I cannot ask somebody, hey, so uh, can you cut? Let's let's uh, now talk again how you try to kill yourself with a, a belt. I, I can do that. Right. You know, so not only was limited, but again, people were there because they wanted to tell those stories. Mm-hmm. They wanted to make sure that, you know, we get that story out. Now, it was rough. You know, I'm not a fan of going over time. So every time, every day was like 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. You know, if I go 13, I'm like freaking out desperate because I don't believe in that. I think that if people are going to give their best in 12 hours, that's the time that they should have. And, and no more than that. So it was rough. Mm-hmm. But we tried to go as fast as we could. Yeah. There are scenes that we only have 30 minutes to shoot. There's nothing you can do about it. And we got to go. But again, the pre-production was so severe to me yeah. that every shot, I knew exactly what I was going to do how the camera's going to be positioned, you know, very Hitchcock kind of way, yeah, you know, right. preparing everything. Storyboarding. Prior to exa- I'm horrified. Oh, my goodness. But I'm the one that says, and then the camera turns here. Go this way. It, Please it, the yeah, shot list, yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so pre-production it was a big deal. The casting crew was fantastic, and they knew what they were doing, mm-hmm. when they were doing it, and yeah. they were ready to go. Um, and then at the end of the day, it's looking at it and go, what can I get right now, and what I have to, to, to live out, or what I, right. I'm not allowed to do it. Yeah. You know, it's give in and give up a little bit. So did you have lessons that you learned? On, I'm sure you had lessons that you learned on the first shoot that you took with you to the second shoot because you just finished shooting yeah. your second feature. Yes. Uh, follow your guts. I think that's what I what I learned is that there's always somebody that's going to tell you what to do and how to do it. And that is cool. I appreciate it. <laughs> but there is a pre-production for a reason. And then mm-hmm. when it comes to crunch time, there's not much I can do but just to go get it done. Now, again, the budget for the second one was twice as big as the first one so it gave me a little bit of a, of a leap why you know the, the, the second one was only 40 scenes or no 47 scenes or 48 scenes so it's half of blue and it gave me a little more time with the actors so it gave me gave me a little more time with the shots itself um you know so so it's it's a lot that that's to be learned but at the end of the day is just to follow your guts and say 
I did the pre-production. I did what I have to do prior to this. So now it's showtime and have fun. Yeah. Honestly. So how do you approach working with actors? Um, because in Blue, especially, it's like it's really challenging yeah. material because it's talking about tough stuff, but it's, you know, also the characters go through life, death, all of these different emotional ranges. Um, I think what Hitchcock said to uh, Janet Lee was that he was like, I hired you because you're an actress. I will only direct you if you attempt to take more than your share of the pie, if you don't take enough, or if you are having trouble motivating the necessary timed movement. So it seems like he was sort of like, you do your job, I do mine, I'm only going to step in. Like, What is your approach to working with actors? Because I, I did this way before I started directing, you know, mm-hmm. since I was little. I think I understand the other side of it, and For I understand sure. there is there is a lot of work behind it. There are times that the actors just come in and they are not on on their game that day for mm-hmm. whatever reason. So one, I believe that you need to talk to your actors. I think I think it's important for me to every morning talk. Hey, how are you doing? What's going on? How can I help you? Do you have questions for me? And then I can go move on and do my job, and I hope that you can do yours. But also leave the door open that if you need anything or if you have any questions for me. I will stop and try to answer you the best of my abilities as fast as I can. And two, I'm married an actress. I never thought that was going to happen in my life, but I ended up marrying an actress. So I know also the struggles that she goes through and the questions that she has that sometimes are so small and all she needs is to be like, hey, what about this? And if I say yes or no, you know, everything just completely works. It just it just works. So I think it's communication. I think once you have a communication, you don't think that you're God. You know, I don't I don't agree with Hitchcock on that on that sense. Mm, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I, I think that it's a collaboration at the end of the day. I'm not a fan of that word, but it is. You know, it, yeah. it's coming together to make something that is above and beyond who we are, independent of what movie it's all about. So, yeah, it's about communication to me. Yeah, I think that um, that approach to I, I listen, I think I, I'm not a filmmaker, but I think directors obviously have very widely different approaches to working with actors, either. I hired you and you're just going to do the job or (laughs) I'm going to be there to collaborate with you and talk to you about it. Um, Oh, don't get me wrong. Right. I hire you to do a job. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I know exactly what I want from my characters. You're not going to dance around it. You're going to give me what I want. Right. But for you to get to that place and be the best you can be, I'm here to help you to that journey. Right. Um, It's got to be interesting working, you know, your wife stars Mm -hmm. in your film, what was that like working with someone who you're so close to? Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and the reason why is because she knows me so well. Right. So all I could say is like one word and she goes, oh, I get it. You know, or or just be able to say, hey, it's not working. I think I'm, I'm, I won't. Th- th- there are things that I would tell her that I wouldn't tell an actor because the actor would be like, you know, oh, she hurt my feelings. You know? And I'm <laughs> like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, but, but because she's my wife, uh, she knows that when I say something a little bit harsher, it doesn't mean that I'm trying to be rude. It just means that I want the, the absolutely best from her right. because I know she can give it to it. Right. Um, so it was fantastic. It was, was easy. And besides, it, she rode with me. Mm-hmm. So she knew that character, you know. Right. Backwards, you know. I mean, it was based on me. She got this, you know. Right. So it, it was, it was, it was great. So pro- when she arrived at set, it was like, I've already got this inside and out. I know yeah. what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Like before, I, I try to do that with my actors as much as I can, at least with lead actors. But uh, I would ask her like, what is Helen's favorite color? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily is my favorite color, but that character. What is favorite movie? What is favorite color? What is favorite this? What is favorite that? You know. And she would answer like, okay, Helen. 
would do this and that Helen would say this and and so yeah it was was easy in in a way to work with her but not because you know indeed she's a phenomenal actress and she she went through things that, to play this part that that I don't think a lot of actors would have um, she had to go deep downside to find her own demons too in mm-hmm. order to portray that the character yeah. that has so much um, but at the same time also she did a fantastic homework again pre-production she did a fantastic pre-production of of her own character development mm-hmm. and you showed you show in the movie well we are going to take another quick break and when we come back we'll talk more psycho Dead Pilot Society brings you exclusive readings of comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Patton Oswalt. So the vampire from the future sleeps in the dude's studio during the day, and they hunt monsters at night. It's Blade meets the odd couple. Adam Scott and Jane Levy. Come on, Corey. She's too serious, too businessy. She doesn't know the hokey pokey. Well, she'll learn what it's all about. <laughs> Busy Phillips and Dave Keckner. Baby, this is family. My Uncle Tell, who showed his wiener to Cinderella at Disneyland, is family. Do you want him staying with us? He did stay with us for three months. And he was a delight. A new pilot every month, only on Dead Pilot Society for maximum fun. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm my name is Katie Walsh, and I'm here with Gabby Ledesma. We're talking about Psycho and her movie Blue, and all things Hitchcock. So, you are the first interviewer or interviewee that I've had on this podcast who has been in the military. Really, I think. Um, Fun. What did you do in the Navy? Uh, I I I was an ABH. Which okay, have you seen Top Gun? I have. Okay. <laughs> so, unfortunately, that's the way I have to start. Gabby, just explain everything to me in movie terms and I'll understand it. But Top that's Gun, good. I Top love. Gun. So, so uh, on Top Gun, when you see the fly deck, you see people with different jerseys and whatnot. So that's what I did. I, I you know, I, I handle uh, aircraft. So you, you text the aircraft, you launch the aircraft and whatnot. Okay. So that was my primary job. My secondary job when we were not in deployment or out to sea, it was a MP, which is um, um, military police force so when we were in port i was carrying a gun we were not i'm just you know moving aircraft so it was fun just super easy just you know yes. f- launching um <laughs> fighter jets <laughs> off of a boat yes <laughs> fun fun <laughs> super stuff. chill yes yes <laughs> so do you feel like anything that you learned in the military you like brought with you time to management time management okay that is the number one rule for filmmaking you know i'm the one with the watch going all right guys i have 13 seconds to get this going. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to make it. Um, so, yeah, time management from the military. And, and, of course, you know, expecting people to do the best they can do with what they have, but also supply them with enough tools that they can do what they're supposed to do on the best of their abilities. So, yeah, I think that's what I got from the military. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So do your ADs, your assistant directors, are they just like, ah, we don't, we can go like sit over in the corner. No, I need She's... all the help I can get. No, please. Anybody help. Yes. But it's good to know that I'm not just here going, this is a beautiful shot. What else can I do? You know, it's like, no, 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 this is a great shot, but we need to go a little bit faster. I would love to make it even better. But if I do this, I'm going to miss the next one. So, right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, like I said before, you know, everybody got to come together. And, and unfortunately, I hate that word, but you got to collaborate, you know, you got to 
yeah. come together and make sure that, that that picture is done and on time and on budget. Right. It's like managing all the different priorities that you have as a filmmaker, yeah. um, which, you know, as a director, <laughs> you have to manage every single one of them. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. I love chaos. I mean, we're, I was in the military to fight that. I love chaos. You know what I mean? Like, yes. And it's it's like, it's the peace that you can get from chaos. You know, it's like a, a symphony. And I sound so filmmaker right now. The symphony more, of the baby. chaos. You know, <laughs> this is exactly how it feels. You know, it's like, yeah, it's fun. That's so interesting. So what is easier, uh, launching a fighter jet off a boat or directing a film? <laughs> I got paid to to do the first one. <laughs> the second one, it's hard to do it. So, yeah, I mean, I got the budget. I, I, I'll be on the, you know, making a move at any time. I got this. I got That's this. That's so funny. <laughs> um, there's so many great character actors yeah. in uh, in that film. I mean, Martin Balsam, who plays Arbogast, was mm-hmm. like a New York theater actor. I love the doctor at the end who just comes in and, and he's just so recognizable. Um, the other funny thing is that the other secretary in the office is mm-hmm. Hitchcock's daughter. Yes. And um, I was watching a little video of her talking about the film and she was saying, you know, I always wanted to be an actress ever since I was a young girl, but her dad would like not cast her yeah. in things unless she was perfect for the role. That's right. And I mean, look, I love my wife. I think she's <laughs> phenomenal, but I'm not going to shove her in every movie I make because she's my wife. You know, if I can put her there, great. If not, hey, girl, let's make the next one. Let's do it. You know, that's so yeah. funny. No you nepotism. No you dumb. can't. Well, you can't because then the audience will know. The audience right. will not trust you anymore. And they're going to look at you and be like, why am I going to watch this movie? You're going to put your wife in there. Like, nah. I'm gonna I'm gonna use the person that is right for that part. If mm-hmm. I can have her on my on my set, great. You know, normally she comes in as one of the producers, anyways. You know, and normally we write together. Or, I mean, we always write together. So she's gonna be on set. Um, you know, but again, if, if she's right, she's right. If she's not, and so I get it. What Hitchcock went through that. You know, and you have to. Otherwise, people don't trust you anymore. I'm picking up on another uh, connection, which is that Hitchcock <laughs> collaborated with his wife yeah. Alma. Yes. And apparently, he he uh, told. Stefano to write one of the scenes and he came back and was like Alma loved it and he was like yes. you know a lot of the those yes. creative decisions went through you have to you know went through his through Alma Hitchcock who you know was also his producing and collaborating partner yeah, so I mean you, a lot of the psycho the cutting up psycho was because of her you know, like the, the the splicing those things together and say that works with this, take that one out. It was her. Mm-hmm. It was her idea most of the times. And I think that you have to. You have to bounce on somebody. You have to bounce on somebody that you trust. And I trust her to do the absolutely best for that picture and for myself as, as possible. So, yeah, I, like I said, I don't send one email without her checking because I know that at the end of the day, I'm going to say K at the end of my message. And she goes, no, that's not how you do it, honey. You got to say <laughs> thank you very not, very much for your time. I'm like, oh, yeah, whoops. You know, so, yeah, absolutely. I, I count on her a lot for that because I trust her so much. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to go through the post-production process on Blue, which was a very low-budget film. I mean, did you have enough coverage and material to work with or were no. you very okay <laughs> um hitchcock did something that 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 i had to take it in because i had to uh, which was he he everything he shot it was meant to be in the movie right um he didn't do extra you know takes just like the studio wanted and that's exactly what we had to come in and do it mm-hmm. it was if we can only have one take of this 
you better start rolling and then get a bunch of that back reset and do it again because we just don't have it. Um, so that's that's what we had to do. I just have in mind when it comes to post-production, it was going to be tight. It was going to be rough to do it. And then it came, unfortunately, after some, some, some things happened, I, I had to take over and do the editing. Okay. Uh, that, that was a thing. <laughs> but it made it happen, and I think I learned so much about filmmaking that I would never be able to learn at school. Um, so Through uh, the editing process? Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, there are things that now I look at it and I go, ah, okay, don't ever do that again. Because when it comes to the editing room, it's impossible to pick it up. Right. Um, so, yeah, and uh, and I had to edit it myself. And, uh, but it was fun. I mean, it took me... 16 days, 20 hours a day. Whoa, that's And we got a rough cut done. Uh, And then, you know, from that point, because everything has to be fast. You know, once you don't have the money, the fastest you can do it, you know, and and the best you can do it for for the money, you you have to. Yeah, that's interesting because I think Hitchcock would, like, edit in camera, Mm -hmm. like, only shoot the takes, the the shots that he needed. Yeah, he would stop right in the middle, too. Like, that's all I needed. And, you know, producers were at Rebecca, I think. Yeah, Rebecca. Yeah, they were like, nah, you got to shoot a little bit more. And he was like, nah, that's all I needed. Right. And it was his way of, like, keeping control, but, you you know. It's it's very much something that I'm sure on a low budget production you're just like we got we have a very short amount of time. Not even a, a short amount of time. Is that as a director you want to make sure that your idea your vision comes into play later on and right. you don't want to you know you don't want somebody to be like oh yeah this is this is awesome looking and you're like that's not what I envision. I mean not to be like you know you know, fun director. Oh, that's not what I envisioned. I wanted something fun. But it's just to say, hey, this is not what we're looking for. Let's make sure that it tied it up a little bit more. So, you know, of course, I would love to have more, you know, um, more takes and more different, you know, um, camera movements and whatnot, uh, camera placement. But because of the budget, because of the time construction, you have to do that. Mm-hmm. You have to set it up in a way that it goes straight to uh, to post and um yeah. It's such an interesting film because I also realize that there's not a ton of dialogue, like long dialogue mm-hmm. scenes. Um, there's the one in the beginning with her and her boyfriend where she's basically saying, like, I want to get married mm-hmm. and he can't get married. And um, and then there's that long dialogue scene between her and Norman. But so much of it is just watching her um, make her decision sort of Details. silently. And yeah. it's like in the visual storytelling and in the performance of her face where she's sort of and Anthony Perkins like instantly going from like smiley little dude to like psycho right then and there he is amazing and you know this film obviously stayed with him like people I think kind of associated him with this film I mean 23 years later he he tried to do uh, Psycho 2 right which I haven't uh... seen Psycho 2 have you seen it (laughs) just just don't Okay. <laughs> to me, to, there, there, there is there, there are movies that you shouldn't be touched. Right. Like, I agree. When they they redid Psycho, which was by Guns Van Gus Van Sant. Don't yeah. do. Just don't. I mean, you you match the shot. Why? Why are we doing this? Right. Leave it. Don't touch it. Don't mess with it. You know, Anthony Perkins did direct the third one. Was a flop. And mm-hmm. just, just leave it. Right. You know? I know you. That you understand why you want more because that character is so fascinating but it's like yeah just leave it as it is to me personally you lost the soul right right not because oh hitchcock is so amazing you lost the soul no it's like that guy gave the character to the newspaper like she opens the newspaper suddenly that character has his own camera and we're gonna talk to to that newspaper because has the money you know and so things he gave characters to things when he brought up the the cop 
oh my goodness you know like and you feel it you feel how tense it is mm-hmm. you know the collaboration between him and, and the composer those are the important things that I think that when you just want to make a movie because you think that people are going to go and, and, and pay and watch it you lose that sense of uniqueness that truth to that movie and I think that once you know once you lose that director which is Hitchcock for, for Psycho you kind of lose a little bit of the magic Gabrielle Ledesma thank you so much for being here and talking about Psycho with us and talking about your film and your career as well, where can we see Blue? Is it available right now? It's available on VOD on iTunes, uh, Prime Video, YouTube, Google Play, uh, Vudu, um, Amazon. Uh, and uh, internationally, you can find on Xbox and Vimeo. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, it's worldwide. If you have access to the internet, you can, re- you can watch Blue. Absolutely. So, so go and watch it. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters with me, Katie Walsh. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet us at SwitchbladePod or email us at switchbladesisters at maximumfun.org. Please check out our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Switchblade Sisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. This is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.